Oh, but this means that I'm streaming live on Twitch. I haven't done this in a while, so I'm just going to hope that it's working. Welcome to the concluding episode of Bookwarm Games. Or sorry, I meant Game Cool Books. Uh, Bookwarm Games is the title of my Twitch. Um, it's also the title of the overall project here. Uh, which I began with a video game called Earthbound for Super Nintendo. And that's the last time I used Twitch. Um, that's the only time I've used Twitch. So this makes two. And as I'm going through this project, my goal is to kind of work uh, with games and work with books and kind of go back and forth and alternate between the two um, and see where the overlap is between the two media uh, and see where the differences are. Um, and see where the overlap is between the two media. Uh, and see. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like Twitch is working. Um, at least um, for me, as I'm signed into it. <laughs> uh, so it looks like some extra media are making it in as well. Um, this podcast uh, format, of course, uh, is the one I've chosen to uh, broadcast my... Uh, my ideas with and the video um, they're all kind of growing out of the podcasts for now at least um, some of those are conversations and I wanted to start by you know letting off all this kind of nervous rambling and, and just say thanks again um, to the conversation uh, interviewees uh, interlocutors the people who've been willing to take some time to talk to me about this book that I love, The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. Um, so first, I'll read off a few messages that I've, I've got here from my various um, conversation partners. Sparrow sends her regards. Verlin wishes us all the best. Merrick urges us to take whatever might be valuable or interesting and discard the rest. Um, he's also, I'll just remind you, he's got a number of great articles, books, book chapters um, that are available, some of them at least uh, through his academia um, profile, which is well, I, where, where I came across him. Um, so check those out. Maggie and Gabriel send their encouragement from the UK, where it's the middle of the night. Uh, likewise, Mark. Um, and Mark's also got a new book out. He's written something called uh, Secret History of Christianity, Jesus, the Last Inkling, and the Evolution of Consciousness, which sounds so awesome. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. It's, it's coming out soon. I don't think it's actually been released yet. Um, that's our UK participants. Um, and Kevin uh, wishes he can attend. Um, maybe he'll be able to make it. We'll see. Um, I sure hope that, uh, at any rate, this is recording in some fashion, so people who can't make it now will be able to see it later. And, um, um, Lauren, um, who gave me a good lead on a video game scholar named Alf Siegert, uh, says hi. So does Liana, aka Musical Lee, um. So uh, I, I think, I 
Oh gosh, I hope that's everybody. If I've forgotten somebody, I, I really apologize. Um, a big thanks again also to friends and listeners from the Earthbound series, that first series of my uh, podcast project here. And week by week, I have been actually going back over the transcripts and um, the conversations from, from there and making them into a serial um, kind of book, essentially, uh, that's being released bit by bit on The Well-Read Mage, which is a video game journalism site, which is really cool. So thanks to uh, Moses, who runs The Well-Read Mage. Um, I'm hoping to do something similar uh, with this project, um, taking all of this material Pairing it down, no doubt, and um, getting it into some kind of manuscript form to try to put it out as a book. Now, uh, I I know that'll take a little while. I, I'd really like to do it though in time for the release of the new book, The Secret Commonwealth, as part of the Book of Dust. Uh, that's coming up in the fall, and so is the BBC produced. It looks like. HBO is actually going to be the um, platform, though, so that's huge, uh, for the new His Dark Materials TV series. Um, that's also coming out in the fall, as far as I know. It, again, um, would be awesome to get some kind of a book that could possibly be released uh, to, to coordinate with that, I, I guess probably a little bit of a short window but at any rate the idea is that something like that as the movie did will bring a kind of a new generation uh, of audience to Philip Pullman's work um, that's been my hope anyway um, and part of the reason that I've been um, kind of working a little faster um, lately is, is to try to to get something prepared for that uh, deadline in, in October, I think. Now, um, as I go along, though, I'll be putting out some new content on The Subtle Knife, so continuing with his dark materials in the order uh, that Pullman wrote them, and I'll also kind of alternate episode to episode, more likely this time, or at least week to week, um, between the book, The Subtle Knife, and the next video game that I want to dive into, which is Xenogears from the old uh, original PlayStation. Um, fascinating uh, video game, uh, very much along the lines of a, a Final Fantasy or something like that. Um, so I've, I've kind of been um, playing these old video games with a friend of mine, Alex Schmid. Um, he has his own podcast, which is excellent, Alexander Schmid Podcast. Um, and he's the one who really got me uh, to start um, making my own podcasts. I did that you know, through a partnership with him, and, and a lot of our conversations have been on Final Fantasy VII. Um, but we also have a series that covers the Harry Potter books that we're doing with our friend Sarah Miller. Um, that Harry Potter conversation, it might be called Potter's Pockets. Some of the earlier books were under that name. 
the later books are all under the Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, um, since there's already a Leaky Cauldron podcast out there. Uh, that's to, to differentiate. Um, those ones, um, we actually gave a, a talk, Sarah and I, at a fantasy sci-fi convention in Seattle just the other weekend, um, which went really well. So uh, that might actually be a good introduction to that series, uh, that talk we gave at NorwestCon. 42. Um, it was a great audience. Um, got to kind of go over some of our favorite themes and um, hear from the people who came to, to share their ideas. Um, so it was just a great kind of uh, give and take. Um, really look forward to doing something similar uh, again with this project in the future. Um, the other big inspiration, along with Alex and all of his motivation, um, besides these great books and great video games, uh, the other big inspiration for all this has been um, Corey Olson's work at uh, Signum and Mythgard, and the new um, Signum Academy is another place where I'll be trying to put out some new material in the in the near future. Um, most likely in the fall, we'll have some new live discussions. Um, until then, there's kind of a reboot of the website that we're working on for the Signum Academy courses from last summer, uh, where we talked about The Hobbit, the first Harry Potter, um, the first Narnia book, and uh, A Wrinkle in Time. And those are all really great. Um, we're trying to kind of package them in a way that might be a little more flexible and a little more fun and accessible for people. That's the goal. Um, so look for that coming out soon too. At, in the meantime, all those recordings are, are online. Um, now, I wanted to uh, use this time mostly really as a, a question and answer uh, format. And I think that if you're, if you're on here live, you should be able to see a chat window on Steam, or sorry, what is this thing called? Twitch, yeah. A lot of people who play Steam games use Twitch, so anyway, you can chat right there. Um, I should see stuff if it um, goes through properly. You can also always just send uh, emails. If uh, I've been in touch with you, you have my email. You can also comment on the blog or on any of the posted videos. These are all places where I can see your questions and, and try to answer them. Um, I know it's kind of short notice for a lot of people, or again, people are in the middle of the night um, sleeping or you know doing work or whatever they need to do. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm okay if there's not too many live questions coming in. I, I did have a few um, sent in before today, uh, and some of these come from um, Steph and her family, uh, who are all actually together. This weekend got to see Liz for a little while. Um, she helped uh, plant some blueberry bushes out in the front yard here, which looked really great. Um, and she also, uh, along with the other bells, sent in some questions, it looks like. So um, the first question, and this is one I'm sure uh, everyone who reads this book 
is bound to wonder sooner or later is what kind of alcohol do alcoholic bears drink? And uh, corollary, I guess, did Yorick, that is Yorick Birnison, the armored bear, did Yorick have PTSD? The latter question I am not really qualified to answer um, as it would tread too much into psychological territory for me. Um, I'm really just going off of what's in the book, and so that's probably um, a bit of a stretch, a bit speculative even to answer the first part of the question here, but um, people in the North in this world uh, seem to drink a lot of vodka. Uh, I know this because when we get to it, um, we'll see. In the third book, The Amber Spyglass, there's a chapter that's titled Vodka. Uh, it concerns Will's run-in with a very uh, disturbing and uh, remote agent of the magisterium, the all-powerful church-like entity of, of Lyra's world. Um, if I'm remembering that correctly, that's, that's when Will is on his way to rescue Lyra, and he's passing through the north of her world. Um, so that's my guess. I believe it's vodka. I think there's strong evidence that it's a uh, moonshine type vodka, probably extremely strong um, and probably not really intended for human consumption. It, it's, it seems like it might be special uh, made for the, um, the deceiving the enslaving of, of renegade armored bears, of exiled bears like Yorick. Um, the people of Trollesund intentionally tricked him out of his armor by getting him drunk. And it seems that he was only able to be tricked because he was um, so distraught over having been cast out unjustly uh, from his people, from his kingdom. Um, so I think truly one of Lyra's greatest uh, accomplishments in that in that book is her um, rescue of Yorick Birnison. I think I just got a, a note that I should turn the volume up. Maybe I'm just too quiet. Um, all right, so hopefully that's a little better. So the next question here, it seems that a person's demon is a function of their socioeconomic status. I think that's right, yeah. Um, at least that's something that enters into the, the consideration. And so it seems difficult, this is the question going on, to attain upward mobility. What if someone suffers a stroke and has a dramatic personality change? Do their demons change? Again, I guess I'll just have to speculate on this one. Um, I don't really remember any good examples of something like that happening. Um, maybe a good example would be Fartacorum. Uh, it seems that something grave has happened to him, um, which has left him physically very weak, um, although mentally still very sharp. So maybe it's not quite as severe as a stroke or something like that. 
I guess that's probably more what the question is going for. Um, you could imagine the case of, of something like Alzheimer's, right? Um, maybe that would have an impact on, on the physical appearance of one's demon. But it seems that once the demon's form is fixed, it, it stays what it is. Um, there's actually some really, again, disturbing <laughs> examples in the new book, um, La Belle Sauvage, the first of the Book of Dust, where uh, the demon's form changes because of physical harm that comes to the demon itself. Um, but again, that's that seems to be a little different here. It seems that, yeah, for better, for worse, the demon's form, once fixed, stays what it is, as far as we know, um, even if the person physically or mentally changes drastically uh, after that point in time, which seems to correspond more or less with um, puberty. Um, the uh, function of the socioeconomic status is a component, at least one of the first things we hear about demons is that servants' demons are always dogs. And that's in Lyra's world, of course, because it's much more sort of hierarchical. And again, demons are normal and visible there. Um, those two things seem to go hand in hand, actually. Um, the idea that you would have a more firmly entrenched hierarchy because certain types of people always seem to have dog demons seems to be sort of a chicken and egg problem actually with the um, perpetuation of the people who are like that having their demons become dogs. You see how that sort of would be a, a mutually reinforcing kind of system there. Um, I think it does mean that upward mobility is perhaps more difficult to attain but, but certainly by no means impossible. We're told Mrs. Coulter is, is a good example of this, that she's not particularly nobly born, she's not particularly wealthy or, or powerful um, until she works for it. Um, and I guess what we're sort of led to believe is that whatever it is within a person that would make them, you know, aspire to, to rise in the world, um, that thing is going to manifest pretty early, it seems, uh, in Pullman's reading of human nature, and uh, certainly by the age of puberty. Um, and that's the point at which the demons become settled or fixed in one form. So apparently, um, the young Marissa Coulter manifested such ambition, you know, sort of spirit, and um, at the time when she became more mature, her demon accordingly became fixed as a golden monkey, something um, that climbs, right? That that uh, bears its teeth in imp-like grins of pleasure uh, at all of its nefarious and mischievous successes in the world. Um, yeah, I I think I think that's what I'd say about that. Uh, I'm I really appreciate these questions. Uh, they're things I would never have thought of on my own. Um, the third is, when the boy lost Ratter, so that's Tony Macarios, uh, he lost his Ratter, and it was replaced with a fish, what's the parallel with real life? Is it some mental disorder? Okay, so going along those lines again, it seems that mental disorders 
would manifest in some way in the demon as well. Um, what that exactly would look like, I'm not really sure. I, I don't think we're shown uh, that I can recall examples of people with a sort of diagnosable disorder um, in the way that we, we talk about them. Um, but what's going on with the loss of the demon in Tony Macarius's case, the case of the children that are kidnapped and taken to Bullvanger, the uh, church there is doing an experiment, or rather this this faction within the church, which Mrs. Coulter is responsible for, is experimenting with a process of separating people from their demons. It seems that they do these experiments, and this is the next question that they ask actually, so I'll, I'll take it right now too. The adults that worked at Bullvanger had their demons cut. Is it like a lobotomy? Is it their soul, personality, or both? Why did the children die of heartbreak after being severed, but adults didn't? Okay, so it does seem that this separation is something like a lobotomy based on what happens to the adults that undergo it. They lack curiosity, they lack uh, interest in finding out more about Lyra, which is practically unbelievable, right? Um, although she's doing a pretty good job of toning down her personality at that point you would think that they would still wonder a little bit uh, about this person. Um, but they, they seem to be very disconnected from anything that's not an immediate sort of order that they're given, um, an, an immediate task. Um, this kind of attitude is strengthened a, a bit more when we hear about the zombie um, soldiers which come to Trollicent early in the second book. Um, we don't actually see them in action there, but we hear how terrifying they are. They uh, never tire. They follow orders um, no matter what. Um, and again, these are people whose demons have been severed. But it sounds like in adulthood that's a bit less um, shocking, less uh, crushing to them. And so that might also be partly because it's voluntary, it seems. In the case of these adults, they're doing it presumably as a kind of martyrdom, actually, um, to their their very um, rigid sort of faith um, and uh, their following of the institution of that faith, the, ch the church. Um, its dominance in science and in politics is, is apparently absolute in Lyra's world. And so it's a weird sense in which that, that rigid hierarchy, um, by becoming too oppressive, sort of undermines itself. Because how I read this loss of Tony Macarios and the children is, is precisely as a loss of faith, of the kind of life-affirming faith that I think is still a possibility, even within Pullman's avowedly atheistic framework for his story. I think this is one of the central points that I'm sort of discovering and researching as I'm rereading these books really carefully. Um, what I see in Tony Macarios's case is a, um, a child who is on the cusp of puberty, um, but not quite there yet, and who is uh, separated forcibly from the very thing that he trusts and admires most, 
um, that part of him which seems to make faith um, in in and sort of dwelling in mysteries to, to make that possible that seems to be part of what the demon represents at least um, and I and I see this partly in his case I don't know how much to read into this but I, I want to sort of make it carry quite a bit of weight the fact that it's a fish um, and that the fish is a very ancient symbol for Christ um, I think it's a sort of linguistic pun actually I'm not entirely sure how this association came about originally um, but anyway, the, the fish symbol for Christ is a very, very old one. Um, maybe it has to do with some of those miracles that are recounted in the Gospels. But, but anyhow, um, I see that as Tony having lost the living element of his faith, of his innocence, his childlike wonder and um, sense of being safe in mysteries, right? And his desire to kind of go and seek out truth curiously, and freely. Um, that's all something that Mrs. Coulter uses to seduce and, and capture these children, and then that's what's precisely taken away from them. Um, and then all that he has left is this, this frozen, dead, wooden, right, the cross, the wood, board-like fish that he can sort of clutch to him. Uh, it's one of the saddest moments uh, in that story. It's, it's kind of a, a turning point in terms of the tone and the the darkness of that story um it's uh, i think a, a really powerful moment um so what that uh that seems to be a, a part of the soul a part of the personality in the adult's case it's like a lobotomy in the children's case it's much more uh much greater suffering seems to be engendered again because it's not voluntary on their part because they aren't sort of fully formed yet. They're still in this very important process of development. And, and that's the moment when they're, of course, vulnerable. And as Lord Azriel tells us much later, um, at that moment, a great energy is released. So of course, that energy was, was actually in them, right? It was, it was between them and their demon. Uh, it was a part of them as they were a part of each other. Um, and so I think that, that that release of that great potential kind of energy is what accounts for this, this heartbreak, right, that, that can kill, uh, that can, through the shock of it, actually cause them to, to die on the spot if, if kind of care is not taken, uh, if it, it can, can even be called that on the part of their, their captors. So that seems to be what happens in Roger's case. He, the shock of separation the tearing, the forcible tearing as he's on a, a mass of ice that's sliding away while his demon is held in the teeth of Lord Azrael's demon's jaws. That's the, the tearing and the separation and Azrael channels it by touching this wire to the demon at that moment. Um, and and it, it's that which opens the way to this other world. Um, it's that powerful, right? It's, it seems. Um, the, the last question I think that I've got here for now why do all kids try and test how far away they can go from their demons um, what part of childhood development does this symbolize um, it seems 
that this testing of the distance you can go from your demon is like any number of other kinds of physical dares or challenges that kids get up to in their games um, that we'd be familiar with. Um, it seems like this is the kind of thing that you um, you undergo a voluntary degree of suffering just to sort of understand better where that limit is, um, is one way to think about it in a kind of abstract way. Um, I think that this would be any number of stages, you know, would be relevant here in the course of a child's development. But it does seem like in Lyra's case, at least, um, this is kind of particularly salient, like coming to the, the surface as she's sort of a, approaching the cusp of adolescence. Um, that's, you know, as she's on this journey in physical terms, going to the north uh, towards death, essentially, right, with, where nothing is really alive anymore in, in the farthest north. Um, that that seems to sort of map onto her journey as, as far as maturation um, growing up. Uh, it's just one of the ways that, that that theme comes out in the stories. And so it seems like that question, how far can I go, um, becomes more you know crucial more, more critical as you approach that that stage of adolescence um, yeah and so I think about this in terms of also um, her wondering what form her demon is going to take um, she asked that of the sailor as they're watching Pan um, soaring in the air or playing in the water right um, she's or rather, the sailor tells her, you know, sometimes people worry that it's a normal part of growing up. Um, and he tells her the story of a great sailor he knew whose demon settled as a, a porpoise, as a, as a dolphin or something, right? So the sailor could never leave the water. Um, and I was talking to Liz about this the other day. We kind of wondered if there might not be a, a sort of a difference in terms of the distance you can go, depending on whether you're thinking horizontally, as we see with with Lyra and Pan when they're sort of showing off or getting the attention of or whatever is, go is going on when, the, when they're meeting Yorick um, there in the backyard and he's drinking his raw spirits. Um, it seems like you can't go very far horizontally maybe from your demon, but maybe in cases like the dolphin or the seagull, right? Maybe you can go a bit further vertically. Um, maybe uh, Pan is able to fly a bit higher, or, or the, the demon, uh, the stormy petrel of the Tillerman, right? They're, it seems like they're kind of far up in the air, actually, because the spy flies are, are just specks. Um, but when they come closer, they actually seem pretty large. So, so I'm, I'm envisioning Pan flying actually quite high, um, or the dolphin being able to dive you know, pretty low to go like under the boat or something like that more than the few yards that happen horizontally. And maybe the reason for that, or a reason that could account for that, if that is the case, if you want that to be the case, you might say it's because uh, dust is a vertical phenomenon. Primarily, it, it comes uh, in an up and down kind of way um, and emanates in, in, on that vertical plane. Um, and it seems like maybe 
the link between demon and, and person is also uh, a, a fine, subtle sort of manifestation like dust or even composed of dust. That's maybe a way to think about that, uh, that link. Anyway, um, I, I think I got a question here from uh, my mom and dad. Awesome. Um, a major recurring theme of the author is Lyra seeing herself as others see her. Yeah, I agree. Um, that does seem to come up more than um, a coincidental amount <laughs> in this story. Uh, the way that one way that this happens uh, is in the chapter where she is writing Yorick's. Uh, he takes her from the Egyptians to meet Tony Macarios. Um, and so she's alone with him, and she's sort of self-conscious for the first time, really, in her life. Um, or at least she's sort of aware that he sees her maybe as, as like a, a cub, right? A, a child, um, a weakling. And um, this makes her sort of shy around him in a way that she's never been before around anyone else. Um, I think there is definitely something to that as well, though, both before and after that moment. Um, before, again, she doesn't seem really fully aware that it's going on. Um, there's moments like when Pan has to look away when she's in the bath and Mrs. Coulter is washing her hair. Um, the first time that Pan has to look away from her. Um, or when she sort of catches sight of herself in the mirror at Mrs. Coulter's house. There's an interesting kind of just a, a, a preview maybe of what self-awareness might be like in that kind of literal moment of her seeing herself in a different way than she's seen herself before. Um, it seems like also there's um, a number of important moments, well, there's a funny one before that where, you know, she's dressed up to go meet Lord Asriel one of these times when he's visited in the past, and Roger catches sight of her and laughs because she doesn't look like the tomboy Lyra. She looks like a, a very prim and proper Lyra. Um, and so she gets very angry, right? But it's not, maybe not quite the same as, as being self-conscious. Um, but later, there's a number of these really interesting scenes, and the first one happens real early in The Subtle Knife, where she and Will see the same expression on one another's face. So there's this kind of mutual self-consciousness that's, that's shown there. Um, and I think part of what Pullman is, seems to be interested in is, is maybe whether self-consciousness is always a more complex process than simply one becoming aware of oneself. Maybe it always has to take place in this kind of mutual fashion between rational or at least sort of articulate beings, beings who experience the world as being meaningful. Um, so that for one person to feel self-conscious, it takes them thinking of themselves as someone else would see them, right? And then there's this kind of internal 
component to that too, especially in the case of the demon, you always have this part of yourself that's sort of watching you that you're able to watch as well. Um, and I think that dust functions in much the same way. It's this part of nature of the cosmos that is always sort of watching and is always responsive to the meanings that human beings interpret from their world um, that they might interpret about themselves that, that their own story has meaning or something like that um, and that that seems to be what generates uh, what gives life to dust and um, I, I think that would be uh, maybe another kind of key aspect of this series that I'm really trying to pay attention to this time is that process of Lyra's sort of growing self-awareness and how it plays into these major images of dust and demons, how it plays into especially relationships, um, which is what those things seem to represent, right? Relationships between people and between people and nature um, and, uh, and to stories as well, right? Our, our relationship as readers to Pullman's story to his characters. Um, I'm going to plug in my computer real quick um, just to give you uh, an idea of what weird thing I'm doing right now, so sorry about that. Um, if there are more questions, um, please do keep sending them in. Um, Alright, I meant to do that before we started, but I just was yeah, messing around with the, the Twitch stream thing, um, so I didn't, didn't quite get there. All right, so looks like, um, yeah, looks like that's all the questions that I've got so far. Um, I hope that that's uh, enough of an answer on that for now. I, I was going to also uh, mention just as a, a kind of looking ahead again, um, that there's a number of other scholars out there that I'm looking forward to talking to, um, another a number of other fans as as well. Um, so there's musical Lee I mentioned Leanna, um, and her work on the His Dark Materials fandom. Um, that seems to be one of the big places where fans and readers of these books are gathering these days. Um, so I hope that at some point um, this this project kind of makes uh, some kind of impact on, on their consciousness. Um, I, I talked to Leanna already and I'd, I'm looking forward to talking to more people who, who work on there or who enjoy um, using that resource, that fandom. Um, I'd also like to get in touch with, there's there's actually a pretty lively French language um, fan group of Philip Pullman's out there uh, called Sidigazzi, um, right, which is the, the town that Will finds and that Lyra finds herself in at the start of The Subtle Knife. Um, so Sidigazzi uh, their their Twitter handle is a very clever Twitter Gatsi. Um I don't really use it that much, but that is one of the things that I should uh, try to get more involved with. Um, I might even get to do 
a short part of a conversation possibly in French. I think that would be really fun. Um, just to kind of get a perspective on the global impact uh, of these books. Um, their, their translation, um, that's a whole aspect of this that I really don't know much about but would love to learn more. Um, so that's, that's another kind of conversation uh, group that I'm looking to work on in the future. As far as the scholars, um, there's a number of really good books out, and so I'm trying to get in touch with some of the authors of, of those books. Um, I am in touch with a couple and trying to set up times to talk with them. Um, there's also um, some scholars of Tolkien and the Inklings um, that seem like they might have an interest uh, in participating in this project. So I'm, I'm working on setting up some times with them too. Um, of course, people who work in academia tend to be really, really busy. Um, and I feel really fortunate um, for those who, who have been able to make some time to talk with me so far, uh, who have you know, taken the time to even reply to my requests. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Um, and I hope to yeah, schedule a few more in the near future here. Um, now among them, uh, there's, there's Brenton Dickieson, who is finishing up, I think, a PhD, um, who works at Signum already, and who uh, has a blog, A Pilgrim in Narnia, where um, he has a, quite a big following, actually, um, and does post every so often something really relevant to Pullman in particular. So um, I, I actually got to do a, a guest post on there about Pullman's nonfiction that's collected in Demon Voices. Um, and I thought that went pretty well. Um, I got some good responses from that, and, and I'm looking forward to collaborating more with Brenton um, and with other people on Signum um, as well. There's also um, a scholar named uh, Douglas Anderson, um, and he has done a kind of commentary gloss on The Hobbit. It's called The Annotated Hobbit. Uh, it's really cool. It includes tons of interesting um, sort of background on the text and also some of the references and influences that Tolkien is playing with there. Um, it's, a, it's an awesome piece of scholarship that really kind of bridges into like fans and readers, right, and, and sort of general audience. Uh, which is a big goal of mine, uh, again, sort of following in the footsteps of uh, the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, right? So um, that is kind of a, a model, that annotated Hobbit, for something that I'd like to sort of eventually get this um, project to, to line up with. Um, so any sort of comments or ideas about how to to better reach maybe a more general audience, um, how to get a deeper understanding of Pullman's influences and sources for his text, and, and even like the process by which Pullman um, wrote and revised that text. Those are some of the big, um, you know, big goals as far as research and, and scholarship that I have. Um, so. Again, it's, it's, re it's really helpful to have some of these um, 
models to role models that is to to base this work off of um, I'm, I'm really appreciative of their uh, help in this and so another scholar uh, Lori Frost um, has been in touch via email um, I hope she's able to attend or, or listen in later on this um, and she had some really interesting thoughts about chronology which was another kind of maybe it seems like a small thing but it's it's such an important aspect of of a coherent story i think and it's just curious to me one of the weirdest things about rereading this book is noticing how loose pullman actually seems to be with the chronology at least especially maybe early in the story it's in this kind of fairy tale unclear when is this taking place exactly sort of sort of mode um and and he tightens that up i think quite a bit later but but it's just interesting to think about. And um, she did a really interesting bit of analysis of just the uh, detail of Mrs. Coulter's uh, fox fur coat, which I think rightly implies that this is happening sometime when it's pretty cold. Um, that's when she's um, enticing Tony Macarios away. Um, and, uh, and so that sort of gives us a little maybe data point, right? To, to start working off of. Um, so the other one, of course, is the horse fair. We know that the um, gobblers come to Oxford during the horse fair. When is the horse fair? <laughs> it, it seems like it must be either the spring or the fall. Um, and based on what happens a little bit later in the story, it seems clear that it must be the fall, actually. Right? So, it still seems like it's kind of warm then, though. Um, just kind of, that's the feeling I get from that that atmosphere. Maybe it's sort of like um, one of those last warm days before the cold sets in, though, right? So so that's how you can kind of finesse that, um, you know, Tony Macarios is taken away when Mrs. Coulter's wearing a fur coat, uh, and yet um, Lyra becomes aware of the gobblers coming to Oxford, maybe a few weeks later it seems like and yet it still seems pretty warm out there they're out in the sun um, until the shiver goes through them as they realize that anyone could be a gobbler right um, yeah so but that I mean it has to be fall because it seems that the days are very short as they go north whereas if it were in the summer the days would be very long right um, this is especially complicated though because when they go through into the other world it no longer seems like it's winter. It seems like it's summer there, or at least, you know, late spring. Um, that seems to be the case in terms of Will's world, our world as well. The time um, becomes quite distinct there. Once he starts reading the letters in the green case, we get some dates, we get some years. Um, we can see when this story is actually supposed to take place uh, in basically in sort of contemporaneous with when Pullman was writing it, it seems, um, the, the mid-late 90s. Um, but anyhow, it seems like that's suddenly spring again, right? So um, I don't know how that, that time shift works when Lyra goes through the uh, bridge, crosses the bridge that Azriel has made. It seems like she ends up not only in a totally different geographic location, but also a totally different time of year. Um, from when she left her world. Uh, ditto, f or maybe not for Will. Um, his world 
and the world of Shirigatsu actually seem to overlap much more closely. Um, and so maybe that's true geographically as well as temporally. Um, maybe it is sort of late spring when he's uh, going through the window for the first time and arriving in a world where it's warm enough for him to swim in the ocean, right? Um, all right. There, uh, there's a few more questions here from Steph. Okay. Oh, am I sharing my screen? Uh, no, but I hope that the camera is working. <laughs> um, I was maybe going to show a few images, but but I thought the first time I did this and had my screen shared, it, it looked really messy, actually. So I, I tried to clean it up this time. Um, but there was an image I, I might I might show in a minute here. Um, yeah, and these other questions. Uh, yeah, I did. I think I did address those already. Um, yeah, thanks for those. Those were the ones that I, I started off addressing. Um, okay, I wanted to show this image here. I guess it's still open. Yeah. All right, so let's see if this works. Um, I'm getting this image from the very venerable resource Wikipedia. Um, I, I generally find that their uh, their media is is pretty trustworthy anyhow um, and so I'd like to do the screen share I think that's working now so I'm hoping that you're seeing now a picture that's called the lady with an ermine this is by Leonardo da Vinci um, it is uh, according to Pullman himself, uh, one of the sort of inspirations for demons and for Lyra in particular, um, it's a really interesting painting, like all of da Vinci's paintings, I guess. Uh, but because it seems to, I think, uh, tell a, a story, or, or at least it seems to suggest that there is some story here, um, that is conveyed in all these little details um, and you don't have to go outside of the image itself to get this sense the more that you know about the history of the painting of course the more you can sort of read into it but but without even going there I think that the image itself tells a story or suggests the possibility that there is a story here right um, it's of course a, a portrait um, a very realistic one in some ways uh, in terms of the uh, appearance you can tell it's not a photo it's not I think trying to be photorealistic but it is a sort of slightly lightly idealized um, version of what we actually seem to perceive when we look at a person um, it is very careful in terms of its light and shadow without sort of going that next step and, and becoming um, overly concerned with that to the point where that's the only thing that you really see in the picture, right? Like you get in some uh, later Renaissance artists even, and particularly uh, later Western art as a whole, it gets sort of obsessed with formal components. Um, okay, you can see the screen. Great, that's good. <laughs> so you can see what I'm talking about. Um, but the way that this does sort of highlight our awareness of light and darkness is is in the way that there is no background it's just a simple black background and so this figure sort of becomes a, a in a way surreally um, uh, 
living to us, right? Bright, shining. Um, she doesn't have a halo the way that older art did. Um, she's not supposed to be a saint or an angel or anything. She's supposed to be a real person. And so she has kind of a headband and, and something like a gauzy thing that seems to be um, holding her hair uh, down, I guess, modestly, or maybe that was just the fashion. But, but anyway, um, it really accentuates and frames her face, right? Her eyes, her this little sort of half-smile thing that Leonardo likes to do with his mouths. Um, she has a personality, right? Um, and there's this kind of gold braid thing that, that almost is like a memory of a halo, um, but not quite, right? It's, it's real. And, and then, of course, the other main thing that I think we were drawn to is this animal she's holding. Is it an ermine? Is it a ferret? Uh, apparently, it's hard to tell the difference. I don't know the difference. But it, too, seems to have a kind of personality. It sort of is looking at whatever she's looking at. They're sort of both, um, they have their attention on something or someone. Um, and so there's this kind of link established. And that's maybe also um, highlighted by, by this, uh, this necklace that she's wearing. Um, it, it's almost like a chain connecting her, right? Her head and the head of this animal. Um, she's certainly holding it, and it's, it's again, its gesture is almost like a, a reflection of hers. And, and there you can sort of feel a motion that's passing through both of them. As, it's almost as if they've been caught in the act of turning to look or, or also to listen, probably. It, especially the, the ermine has its ears kind of perked up um, as if it's listening. Um, so not only is there a story to these people, but they, they maybe are even uh, in touch with or listening to some story being told. Right? So there, I, I find this, this process of, of just looking closely at, at a, an image, particularly one that seems really rich, um, to be incredibly worthwhile. Um, and again, you don't need to bring in the, the historical context, although Wikipedia or another better source maybe would give you that too, um, and that might be important for certain kinds of research. But, but I think that this is maybe an image too of what uh, is going on where Lyra is able to read the alethiometer without the books of learning, right? Um, she is able to simply look at the symbols and her fascination with them and her sense that they must mean something, right? Once she has that idea that there is a story there, that it is worth paying attention to, then suddenly these kind of layers of meaning start to reveal themselves to her. I don't think it's necessary to um, totally think that there's like a mystical thing going on there with Lyra, um, although that is, of course, possible in this world of the story. Um, but it could simply be that she is working out things that she knows in some deep way and just bringing them to conscious awareness through this kind of poetic process of, of reading these images by her own lights. Um, and we'll hear more about this in The Subtle Knife in terms of negative capability in that great moment when Dr. Mary Malone has just happened to cross that, that bit of uh, Keats' uh, uh, letter about his poetic process and what he thinks is so great about Shakespeare um, in particular. Anyway, so 
I just wanted to share that to give something maybe interesting, um, another yet another angle to kind of read into these stories. Um, and uh, okay, so I got another uh, question from mom and dad. It seems a major recurring theme of the author. Oh, sorry, no, that's that's the one I already read. There's another one here though. Um, oh, here it goes. I'm still confused about the demons having the opposite sex from their human. If they're representative of our souls, I would think that their sex would be the same as their human. Yeah, this is a, I think, a detail that Pullman um, highlights in little ways as he goes along. Um, we're told that right up front that most people have their demons take the opposite sex than, that the person is. But then in some cases, that's not the case. Uh, there's some whose uh, sex is the same as their demons. Um, I think that the first person like that is uh, Bernie, the pastry cook. Um, and yeah, and I think that part of the idea there is that the demon would represent something that's a part of you and yet other, right? It, it's a sense um, in which any person um, incorporates aspects that might be masculine and that might be feminine. Um, in some ways, there's like a stronger pull towards one pole or the other, um, but it might not necessarily be that a person is all one thing or all the other. Um, even biologically, it seems like that's the case. Um, there's all sorts of uh, political discussion about this now, but I think it's um, it's treated pretty delicately in terms of Pullman's story, where um, it's totally normal for people to uh, acknowledge that a part of themselves is the opposite sex, um, and that that manifestation in an outward form, again, um, tends to make Lyra's world like sort of more politically stable, it seems like, because um, that fact is given a physical form. Um, but anyway, that's, I think, going to take us down a, a kind of a rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, I, I think that the, the way that um, the psychologists might talk about this is in terms of a, uh, an archetypal figure of the um, of the the soul or the the part of the soul that is sort of in that realm of unconscious that we can nevertheless sort of become aware of right um, which is part of that process that we see going on when Lyra's reading the alethiometer um, or that a writer undergoes when they're telling a story and they sort of these ideas sort of come to them they're not sure from where um, Pullman talks about that in his nonfiction but he also shows it in his fiction um, I think that there's a sense, um, I don't know how far back this goes, but it's really pretty well documented, I know, by, um, by the psychological, by the philosophical literature, um, that people sort of um, imagine this part of themselves as having a physical form, um, as having indeed a form which is the opposite sex to themselves, right? So uh, that's this kind of, uh, one way to think of it is like an idealized um, other, 
Uh, so you have the kind of eternal feminine that uh, I think it's Goethe talks about. Um, this this ideal image of femaleness, right, femininity, um, that he is inspired by, um, that he's also drawn to and yet terrified of, or, or something like that. Um, in Plato, you have the realm of the ideas that's talked about, and um, beauty there uh, is sort of this um, this thing that makes it possible to see anything, right? Um, to perceive any truth at all. Um, you have to think about there's there being this, this thing outside or else so deeply within us um, that it seems like it's it's something other than ourselves. Um, and that that is what sort of draws us forward towards truth. Um, and of course, uh, in, in, a, in a dialogue of Plato, as often as not, that beauty is given a male form, even among male speakers, right? They, they perceive maybe their demon has a, a male form, so to speak, right? Um, the demon is sort of that thing at least part of what it does, that sort of leads you forward, that draws you forward. You see this really dramatically when Lyra has to leap towards the end of the book across the, the bridge of snow as it falls, and Pan is already across and catches her, right, and holds her. Um, the demon is sort of ahead of you in some ways. Um, so it might be natural uh, to think of that as a person of the opposite sex. Um, anyway, that's uh, that's my attempt <laughs> to, to tackle that question. That, that is a good question. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. I, I hope that that um, isn't too, uh, too much rambling, too much bringing in uh, random stuff. Um, I know I'm sort of prone to do that in this project, um, but I hope that not only does it seem to kind of make sense, but it it's, should help to sort of illuminate um, and, and make the story more interesting. Uh, that's, that's what I found, at least in my experience. Um, and so that's why I try to weave together a lot of different um, sources. Like, I, I don't know, obviously I'm not an expert really in any of these topics. <laughs> so, so if I'm trying to talk about you know, uh, Jungian archetypes, I, I'm bound to get it a little bit wrong, but, but I hope that it's at least somewhat correct too, um, or at least somewhat interesting um, and helpful as you, as you, I mean, tackle these kind of puzzles for yourself. That, that is the goal here. Um, I, I'd love to kind of adapt some of this material into more coherent, you know, class or course uh, type stuff, maybe for a, a younger audience, um, but maybe for just a general audience. Um, again, if there's suggestions about things to do more of, things to do less of, as I'm thinking about how to, you know, do that kind of editing, um, I'd, I'd be really interested in hearing them. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to kind of carry on doing this thing the way that I like to do it. Um, I guess I'm sharing this screen now of, um, of all this, these notes that I've been taking. Uh, I've, I've got quite a 
few of them at this point. Um, I'm going to keep adding to them and uh, going to try to uh, keep making this the best um, that I can do with it. I, I hope it's been helpful. I hope it uh, continues to, to grow um, and reach an audience uh, of people who love Philip Pullman and people who are just interested in, in great stories. Um, I think that that's pretty much everything I was meaning to to touch on here. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to let you go then. Um, thanks again for tuning in, whether it's live and you're uh, sending in questions uh, or whether it's later. Um, thanks for your time. Special thanks to those who've uh, been gracious enough to to talk and send in ideas. Um, I, I really enjoy this. I hope you do too. Bye.